0: Good morning. So yesterday I woke up really expecting a great day of just uh, relaxing. Uh, As Many of you know we've been moving and um, hauling stuff up here to North Liberty sometimes two times a day. Uh, I know I'm in trouble when I get home and Ione says, can I have your car keys? Which means that she has boxes stacked in the garage and I hear the garage door go up. And I'm like, you know, selfishly in my heart, if she's going to do that, then she can just load those boxes by herself. And then God touches my heart and says, now what kind of husband are you? And so I get up and I go out there and slug the boxes into the back of the car, drive up here, throw them in the storage unit, or we go to the stuff and there's just boxes upon boxes. If I never see another box again, it will be way too soon. But I, we were done. Right? I mean, Friday morning, the guy came over, took photos of the house, ready to list, and the house looks like it hasn't looked since the day we moved in. It's just beautiful. Uh, Maybe better said, it's just empty. You know, only things are in there are things that uh, my wife has calculated would attract a buyer. So Saturday morning, I'm thinking, yes, this is awesome. We are done, and we can just sit here and relax. And, of course, at 9 in the morning, Rich Hatch, my realtor, calls me and says, Hey, have you seen this uh, property? And all of a sudden, we're moving, and Iona is crying. And I said, What is going on? And she says, I was praying that God would just call us the day after the photos and a house would be ready and perfect for us. And I said, You realize today is the first day of college football. (laughs) You prayed this behind my back. This will not be forgiven, (laughs) ever. So we spent the day running around yesterday, going back and forth, and, you know, praise the Lord for Rich, because he did find us a place that we liked. We put a bid in, uh, we're waiting to see what happens, but it was uh, well into the middle of the afternoon before I was able to actually watch some football, which, you know, for some of us, like Maria, that's not a bad thing. I mean, it would have been okay if she had missed most of that game, but... You know, I don't have any room to speak as a Nebraska fan. I just kind of keep quiet, don't draw attention to myself, hoping that you guys don't notice, because as long as Iowa's winning, life is miserable for the rest of us. (laughs) But it was a beautiful day yesterday, and so thankful to have loving family and friends who have been walking this journey with us. And I'm just so looking forward to this morning, Uh, this subject of what is a disciple, My goodness, that is just like one of my favorite uh, topics to talk on, and in case you missed it, we do have our handy-dandy vision booklet, study guides, and hopefully you've picked one up. As we go through this sermon series on discipleship, uh, I hope that you just follow along. You know, maybe uh, you're in a group that is going through it as a study, but there are great questions in here. So make sure that you're following so that you know what it is that we're emphasizing each week. Disciples. What does it mean to be a disciple? Last week we hit this, why do we disciple? This morning we're going to be looking at what exactly is a disciple. I was looking at many, many pictures and stories of the apostles, the twelve sometimes referred to as disciples. And I love the way that they work together. I love the way that Christ calls them to do things that are beyond their scope of experience. But I picked out one story this morning that I hope you'll enjoy. It had been at once an incredibly busy and a miraculous day for the 12. The crowds, as always of late, had been pressing, following, demanding. Jesus was kept busy doing those things which only he could do, such as healing, casting out demons, preaching, sharing wisdom, and the disciples had expected to stand by and provide their usual moral support to those in the crowd as they clamored to get near to the rabbi. But today had been different. As the crowds refused to disperse so that they might go into the neighboring villages to obtain food, they keenly felt the need to provide food for them. Jesus had circumvented their ideas on how just exactly they were going to do this by taking the most meager of lunches, a young boy's loaves and fishes, and somehow it multiplied into baskets and baskets of food. No matter how much was distributed to the crowds, the baskets never seemed to empty. The best part of this for the twelve was that Jesus let them be a part of this miracle. They got to carry the baskets and feed the people. While there was no mistaking who the real miracle worker was, still it made them feel like they had finally arrived and that there was true hope that they were now worthy to be emissaries of their master. Now the day had finished, and as so often happened, Jesus told them that the crowds would not leave if they remained within reach. It was already late. They were bone-weary. They were so, so tired. People, ministry is tiring, perhaps like none other. Many chores needed tending to, and frankly, they'd had enough of this day's labor. Jesus encouraged them to get into a longboat and push off into the Sea of Galilee while he would escape to a nearby hill where he could spend time in prayer and intercession, hearing the direction of his Father. The thought of rowing across the sea they all knew so well, left them feeling tired, and it was so anticlimactic to the day's happenings. Nevertheless, obedience is the rule of life for a disciple. It had to be that way. He was their master. So 12 sets of calloused hands gripped the oars, and the boat was propelled out into the darkness. It was between 3 and 6 a.m., On the horizon, they noticed that the sky was lighting up with occasional flashes of an approaching storm. Still, these men were used to the capricious nature of the sea that provided them with a living in their prior calling. Each man's back was repeatedly stretched and contracted as they harmoniously rowed that heavy boat through the ever-growing swales. Water was being thrown in their faces, which served to chase the sleep from their eyes and yet not enough to keep them from mulling over the day's events in their minds. Perhaps for this reason they are to be forgiven for not paying as close attention to the weather as they should have. The gospel says that between this time in the morning when the storm first broke upon them with a ferocious wind, with slashing lightning and sheets of rain pounding them, that they were awakened from their previous reverie and they instinctively knew that they were in danger. The Sea of Galilee could be very unforgiving, the narrow valley of water a mere six miles from shore to shore, and yet they were rowing the boat in a diagonal direction which just added to the length, making the trip just that much longer. Peter, as always vocal and emotional, yelled for them to pull harder and quicken the pace of their oars. They knew they had been foolish in not paying attention to the skies, and now they had to put aside their personality differences and judgments with each other and row as one man, or else perish in the murky depths of the Galilean Sea. It seemed like the waters pushed back against them. The harder they rowed, the more they seemed to be opposed. The water was now hitting them like a hard slap across their faces and the wind blinded them by whipping their hair across their eyes. All signs of the moon and stars that they used for directions were obliterated by the rolling clouds. The waves crested white and signaled the certain death of this boat filled with all the efforts and hopes of the one called the Messiah. You see, these were his They were his disciples. They had followed him and learned to trust him, and even though they didn't know it yet, they were being shaped to take the message of salvation to a world lost in darkness, much like they were lost in darkness now. But in the darkness of this night and in the violence of the waves, they were in danger of being lost. Mm -hmm. The message would come to an end? Hmm. Jesus, watching from the place of prayer, saw the predicament of his disciples and went out to calm them and remind them that he had already shown them that he was the master of the waves and wind, but yet he knew they were filled with foolish superstitions at times. They might be even more frightened seeing him coming across the water, yes, walking on the water. Sure enough, according to the Gospel of Mark, all of them saw Jesus and they were convinced that he was a spirit, a ghost, And in their proximity to death, it might be the harbinger of their fate. What exactly is a disciple? Fascinating story, right? When we think of being disciple, creating disciples, we very rarely think about what it really means to be a disciple, to work in unison, to pull on oars, to put up with people, to have to get along with others that we can't escape to our comfortable homes and our own individualistic lifestyles. We have to cooperate, and the world is against us. Nature is against us. You see, we have an enemy, an enemy that would like to sink your vessel, that would like to keep you from the fulfillment of all that Jesus Christ has for you. To be a disciple is to enter into spiritual warfare. It's to enter into unknown waters it's to roll in the darkness. It's hard. What is a disciple? How do we get to that place where we can be tested in such a way? Well, there are some things that we need to consider this morning. What is that disciple? A disciple, first of all, is a faithful person. disciple is a Christian who has already demonstrated the ability to obey and follow the teachings and lifestyles of Jesus Christ. Now, you might be thinking this morning, well, anybody who becomes a believer is a disciple. And that's arguable. Uh, Theologically possible, truth, maybe. But the way that the scriptures, especially the way the gospel uses the idea of disciple, is it's just calling. It's a step above. It's it's part of what is the expected progress of anyone who claims to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I want to be a disciple. Well, it's not enough to just be someone who walked an aisle, raised a hand, said amen, when someone said it's time to give your life to Christ. I prayed the sinner's prayer. That makes me a disciple. No, that makes you a novice in spirituality. That makes you someone who's willing to take that first step, not the only step. To be a disciple, now, Jesus gives us ample demonstrations throughout the Gospels of calling people and saying, hey, come join me. Come and follow me. That makes you a disciple. We, we read stories that there were probably some 120 disciples in the time of Jesus, people who were set aside, people who had willingly came into training to learn how to be faithful, to take those next steps. Jesus is the greatest disciple maker ever. And yet, over time, he winnowed down those numbers, 120, oh, let's send 70 out to the villages, They can cast out demons. They can speak the truth. They can tell the people that the Messiah is here. Well, that may be too many yet. Let's let's go down to 12. 12 men that will take the message. After I'm gone, and we see this in the book of Acts, these disciples, these disciples had a special anointing, a special calling. They were going to go out and speak to the countryside, speak to the world. And even of those 12, one couldn't make it, did he? So what makes that disciple? Well, first of all, like I said, you have to be faithful. Nothing is more important in choosing someone to disciple than finding someone who is willing to give their all to Christ. I love this story from Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 20, and it says, Behold, a man came up to him, that is Jesus, saying, Teacher, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Oh, the young man was so satisfied with himself. He said, Wow, well, exactly which commandments are you talking about? And Jesus says, Well, let's just take a little running start at this. And we have just gone through the Ten Commandments ourselves, so we should be familiar with these. Uh, You shall not murder. Check. You shall not commit adultery. Got it. You shall not steal. Never have. You shall not bear false witness. Not sure if I know what that means, but I don't think I've done that. Honor your father and mother. I've done that one too. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, the young man said to himself, all these things I have kept. Now, what do I still lack to be a disciple? Did you catch that? Hmm. being a disciple doesn't just mean by being faithful that you're keeping the commandments. Let that sink in. Well, I, I thought it did. Uh, I came out of seminary, Dallas Seminary, four years. You know, that's nine cumulative years of studying theology and doctrine. Eleven years teaching and studying Greek, Hebrew, Latin. I know the Word of God. My friend called me and said, do you want to go with me on a weekend trip, and we're going to study discipleship? And I said, (laughs) "What? you foolish one. I've been to seminary. I know what discipleship is. And he says, what is it? And I just said, kind of like what this young man did, well, it's someone who knows Christ as his Savior. It's someone who's living the right life and keeping those commandments and is willing to subject himself to what Jesus asks of him. And my friend said, you know, there's got to be something more. There has to be something more. Across our country, there are just tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who claim to be disciples of Christ because they haven't done the big sins. Is that really all there is? Well, when the young man said to Jesus, well, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus was ready with an answer. Jesus says to him, If you would be perfect, and perfect by the way here does not mean sinless, it's not an idealistic thought, you know, someday you can be perfect. The word in the original here means if you've reached the end, you've gone to the goal, you you saw it, you went that way, and now you've arrived. If you want that to be true of you, here's what I tell you, and you know this story. He says, go. Go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. What? Someone changed the game rules. Someone changed this up to the point where now I've got to get rid of everything that I have? I have to sell my Buick? I have to give up my house? Jesus says, come, follow me the response was almost predictable, wasn't it? When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This isn't just a lesson on what it's like to be wealthy. Jesus goes on and teaches us, it's so hard for people who are rich to come into the kingdom of heaven. But this is God anticipating what's really at the heart, the ownership of, Of your will the ownership of what you plan to do with your life and he is saying I want it you want to be a disciple be faithful turn over the keys to your life to the Lord to the Messiah sometimes we mistake good behavior with a heart ready to follow Christ where did this man's sorrow come from It came from a person who realized that discipleship costs more than most of us are willing to pay. Faithfulness. No other factor is as important to the Lord than our willingness to be obedient no matter what he asks of us. I've told this story before, but as a new believer, I was so excited about my faith and I heard a sermon much like this talking about the marks of a true disciple and I felt like God was telling me something. He would say, who really owns your life, Dave? Who has your possessions? And I thought, I have nothing. I I don't own anything. So I guess I'm already there. I'm pretty good. And God said, no, what you have is a giant comic book collection Now this was before people collected comics to make money off of them. I wish I had kept those comics in some ways, but yet my friends and I love to do nothing but sit around and trade comics, sit and read comics and so forth. And you say, well, that's a foolish thing. It probably is, but it meant a lot to us. It was part of our identity. And I had the most comics of anyone in my neighborhood. And one day I was walking down the hill towards my home and I felt like God was saying, Dave, am I the Lord of your life? You are. I want your comic books. But God, that's so foolish. They're not worth anything. They're just stupid, silly stuff. And God says, no, they mean a lot to you. I want to mean more to you than those comic books. So after a night of wrestling with him, I lost, and I took all those comic books, packed them in my car, drove up the hill to my friend Bob's house, and I came to his door, and I just knocked on his door, and I could hardly talk. It just, it was such a strain, such, such agony I was in, and I just said, Bob, I became a Christian. You know that? And Bob was like, I'm not sure I know what you're talking about, but yeah, I did, and uh, God is telling me to give you all my comic books, so I am. And Bob didn't ask me any more questions. He was thrilled that I had had this spiritual experience. And so he helped me unload all this stuff into his house, and I never saw those again. And I was surprised as I drove away. I expected to be really sad, uh, feeling like maybe I'd done something rather impulsively, but instead I felt a sense of peace. It was weird. Like a chunk of me was missing, but it was a chunk that had kind of restrain me from doing the will of God and in my life I've had that same experience time and time again which probably gives testimony more to how easy it is for us to gain things take things to ourselves to be unfaithful rather than any spiritual height I looked at my babies as they're born my girls wow you know the story own and I waited so long to have a child. And I, yet I felt God was saying, you know, that girl is mine, not yours. I don't want anything to get between you and obedience to me. And I remember coming home and saying to Dione, we have to pray. We have to give this child to the Lord. We never can live our lives where this family is even more important than our walk with the Lord. So we did. Now we screw things up all the time. I'm not trying to say, oh, look at us. What I am saying is, are you listening to God? Are you listening to God? What's he asking you today? How are you demonstrating faithfulness to him? Nothing can get in the way of a disciple's commitment to his Lord Not your life, not someone else's life, no possessions. I have to be faithful to him. You say, well, he called you to be a pastor. That's different from me. Is it? Ask him. If you haven't already, ask him. What gets in the way of your walk with God? There have been other things throughout the year. I gave up golf probably 15 years ago couldn't justify spending Saturdays away from my family when I had one day off a week I was gone six hours of those days and every time that I do that and I yield to him I have the same sense of wholeness fulfillment faithfulness now I can teach now I can preach now I can walk in joy with the father because I have rid myself of things that are clouding my vision of him a disciple is first and foremost a faithful person. Secondly, we're available. If you want to be a disciple, you have to be available. Discipleship doesn't happen on our time. It happens whenever the Lord needs you. Availability goes to not only time, but also to place in your attitude of willingness. I read this. In the scriptures, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, ah, Follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Seems like a strange line. Oh, in our culture, perhaps the most difficult thing of all these requirements to be a disciple is to be available. We're so busy. It's an earmark of living in a modern American city. We have a child, we have two children, we have three, and each one of them has their own unique talents and skills, and we are so busy listening to the world around us say, well, they need to be in sports and in dance and in academics and music. No one's saying to you, how are you gonna make time for discipleship in your family? Has anyone asked you that, besides nosy pastors? Probably not. Families. We have to prioritize faith commitments over and above all other things in our life. Typically, we want our children to follow God, but when we say that, what this usually means is something like, God, this is great, I want you to be in my kid's life, to keep my son from what? Well, just don't let him wind up in jail. Don't let him get called into the principal's office. Don't let him do anything, really what it comes down to, that might embarrass me or his family. Got a daughter? Well, I want her to be involved with all these things, uh, but just don't let her get pregnant. That would be so embarrassing. If we can get through those nasty high school years and that's not the truth of our family, then we have succeeded. We have been available. But we don't want them to get too crazy about their walk with Christ because the command the commitment of availability is such it's going to crimp our family lifestyle oh, I, I, I preached on this once in my church back in Nebraska and I, I decided that maybe a way to get this emphasis across was to tell my parents I had 700 parents sitting out there and i told them i said you know what we're going to require this year if your kid wants to be on my disciple makers team they can only be in one thing at school they can play football they can be in band they can do this this and that but only one of those because if they're going to apply and become a disciple maker that is a huge commitment and i want to show the value of that commitment as being greater than that one thing that you're allowing them to do. And certainly they can't do this well if they're doing two, three, four, five things. Then this just becomes one of six, one of 10, and they lose sight of the importance of discipleship. And so will you, quite frankly, do you as parents. So we're just gonna do one. One thing at school, one thing for Christ. And while that seems like a hard way to go, the truth is when you look at scripture, it's actually allowing that one thing in the door, right? You don't see that with these disciples. They're 100% committed. I had a mom come up to me after that sermon, and she said, You have no idea what you're asking. Do you know what it takes to get a kid into a good college? And she was furious with me. My kid has an Eagle Scout. My kid is on the swim team. My kid plays football. He's the quarterback. My kid is in all these academic higher programs and he's doing this and he's doing that. That's what you need in order so they can go to, fill in the blank. I don't remember exactly what her priority school was, but I do know it wasn't the University of Nebraska. She was looking east. And I said, that's fine. I mean, if that's what you and your family have decided, that is your goal go for it. I'm just saying, if you want to be a disciple maker, it's going to take training. Jesus took those 12 guys, more than that, and he said, hey, come walk with me, follow me. You have to live with me. You have to eat with me. You have to be part of me. They walked away from their fishing boats. They walked away from their tax collector booth. They walked away from everything in their life to follow him. It was 100% commitment. How can we ask anything less? Her oldest boy, one of my favorite kids, he walked the journey that his parents wanted him to walk. He's very successful. He was one of two of the top scholars in his high school class in the state. Had scholarships to go anywhere he wanted. But in March of his senior year, just two months of school left, he went on a missions trip with me and God, not me, God touched his heart. And that boy came back and he was so on fire for Christ. It was like a radically different person. He ended up going to school in college. And the next thing I know, he's taught himself to play the guitar so he could lead worship. He's got over 120 other college students that are following him at discipleship and want to be part of his college ministry. He's finding a way to link that with another college ministry that already existed on campus. They're buying houses, old houses, because he's a farm boy. He knows how to fix things, and he would just repair or flip houses, and then the guys that he was discipling would live together. He had visions for things that were just unbelievable, the second son came along, and the parents had kind of decided, well, this is not a bad thing. This is pretty cool. And so in his ninth grade year, he got pushed into our Disciple Makers program. And he did some amazing things. He graduated. He became the head of crew for the state of Nebraska. He was a president of Grad Resources, a ministry dedicated to graduate students. Lived in Dallas for a period of time. And you know what that guy did? He came back to that small little Nebraska town about two years ago. Now he's the head pastor there. He wants to do the same thing. You see, he was so touched by what Christ did in his life and his discipling experience. He wanted to do the same for other kids. It's a commitment. How available are we? Jesus wants you to do something. Well, I've got these commitments, God. I can't do this and I can't do that. And boy, this is too tough for me. I I I, I just this maybe would be good for someone else, but I am busy. I go to work six in the morning and I don't get home till eight. I I candidated at a church in Chicago. Very, very busy church. Lot of uh, people making serious amounts of money. And the pastor asked me, he said, this this position was for pastor of adult education. And he was like, how are you going to reach these men? I'm having a dickens of a time. They leave on the trains to go into downtown Chicago early in the morning. They don't get back till seven or eight. They do this five days minimum a week, sometimes six. They barely have time to be with their families. And now you're going to call them to come to a Bible study. How's that going to happen? Not my problem was my answer. They have to answer before Christ. You have to be available to him. It's not my job to figure out when you're going to make time to let God disciple you. You have to figure that out. I'm just, when you're ready, I'm ready. Let's go. He didn't like my answer. I don't work there. (laughs) That's right. I mean, we have to think about that. Third thing that we're asked to be is teachable. A disciple needs to be teachable. You don't know the answers to everything. I don't either. You can't possibly fathom the mind of God. We just need to listen and obey, right? This was the problem of the Pharisees. They thought they knew it all. Man, they had high educations. They were powerful people in their culture. They certainly weren't going to listen to this itinerant man of God from Galilee The Messiah you say don't see it don't believe it they weren't teachable now Jesus was praying in a certain place according to this passage from Matthew and when he had finished one of his disciples said to him Lord teach us to pray as John taught his disciples referencing John the Baptist of course being a disciple means you're ready to learn you're not coming with the answers. You're coming with the questions. Not just about doctrine and religious truth, but important matters like how do I live life? How do I become a better dad, a better, a better husband, a better wife? How do I please God? It reflects a humility of spirit with a gentleness of attitude. Uh, you probably run into guys like this. I remember guys in grad school. We'd be sitting in there with these men. Who were world-renowned professors and scholars and some first second-year student would raise his hand oh 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 call on me and I remember Dr. Norm Geisler one of my favorite apologetics professors would call on this one man in particular and this man instead of asking a question would lecture Dr. Geisler on really what his opinion was about what the topic was we were discussing and Dr. Geisler, uh, he loved to respond to that kind of person with a simple expression, category error. In other words, I'm the professor, you're the student, it's not the other way around. The man says, Lord, teach us to pray. He's not telling Jesus, Jesus, I have some ideas on how we can improve our prayer life. This is things that we can do. I, I have a connection with God, and I'm going to tell you what the best know. He recognized that he is in the presence of the Messiah. God made man, the man who took upon himself the form and the likeness of death to pay the penalty for our sins. You see, when we are discipled by someone else, you get discipled by somebody you know as a more mature person in Christ than you are. You're actually being discipled by Christ. Christ speaking through that person to you So you're not telling them how to pray. You're listening to them on how to pray. Can you listen? Remember, the most difficult things to listen to are those things that we hold on to the tightest. In my experience in discipleship, it's those that feel that they have something that is so dear to them, they most define it as their identity. This is who I am. Well, I've got news for you. You don't have it right. You need to be teachable some say well they have to be apt to teach as Paul says in first Timothy well that's if you're going to be an elder but to be a disciple all you have to do is be te- well you say well this is not hard I can be faithful I can be available I can be teachable Wow you you can but are you that's the question who's discipling you this morning who are you discipling not easy there is no lack of people that want to be discipled but there is a tremendous lack of people that want to be faithful and they want to be available they want to be teachable I can't tell you how many times I've entered into a relationship of discipleship with someone at their request and it goes nowhere because they violate one of those three attributes they're not faithful they just don't have time they're not available and they certainly don't want to hear me talk about things, and they're, so therefore they're not teachable. Some find a better teacher, which is not hard, but many of them just kind of drift off. They're comfortable with the fact that, like that first man we read about, they're just living the Christian life. I'm, I'm staying holy. I'm not getting off into deep sin. Well, that's not all there is. There's more. Matthew 11 and Will referred this earlier but it says this come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You started off by telling us the story of these men rowing across this stormy sea, fearing for their life, and now you're saying that Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Which is it? It's one and the same. You see, to be a disciple means that we take upon ourselves a yoke. It says here two imperative commands take on your yoke and learn take on a yoke and learn to yoke someone if you're in agricultural land as you all are it's not hard to understand you take an ox you put a yoke on him a harness something that allows the masters the 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 teamsters hands to hold reins which are connected to the it's a directional exercise take my yoke upon you I will guide you I will let you know when to go when to stop when to turn left when to turn right I will not do more than you can handle it's basically what the point of this message is Wow you see all of us wear yokes we do in our lives before we became believers who owned the yoke that was around our necks it was the enemy Satan was the one that kept you yoked. And his burden was heavy. It was full of shame and anger and fear. And he used his whip freely on you. Jesus says, I'm not like that. Replace that one with my yoke. And the neat thing about a yoke is that it can be joined, yoke upon yoke, right? I mean, this country was discovered with teams of oxen pulling covered wagons across this country. They worked together. The best thing about discipleship is when you're yoked with others who are being discipled. You're a team. And essentially, that's really what the church is supposed to be about. We are supposed to be co-yoked together to accomplish the the purposes that Jesus has given us for North Liberty, for this community, not just for ourselves. That's just kind of like baby discipleship. how do I change? How do I profit from this? How do I get direction from this? No, Jesus is saying it's the church. We are yoked together. And if you really want to get crazy with this, think of yoking in the sense of we're yoked with who? With, With Grace Community Church and with Veritas and with New Life. Anybody that calls Jesus Christ Lord, we're all fellow disciples yoked together trying to accomplish a purpose. We're not in competition with each other. What happens when you have oxen or horses or anything else that are in yokes together and they compete with one another? Do they accomplish their purpose? Not at all. Jesus says, no, there's one master. It's not the pastor. It's not the elders. It's Jesus Christ and him alone. I submit to his yoke. I'll be faithful. I'll be available. I'll be teachable because I know that he knows where we're going, what his purpose is for me. And secondly, he says learn. Just as simple as that. And the word here to learn is a cognate word for to be disciple. Learn from me. Why? Jesus says this, I am gentle and lowly in heart, I'm not going to ask you to do more than you can handle. Well, those those 12, they were just rolling for all they were worth. They were sure their lives were over that night. But Jesus, that's okay. I'm with you. He saw them from the hillside. He walks out there. He's done it before. He'll do it again. What's Jesus asking of you? If you find yourself being discipled and you're in the trials of your life right now, You're facing uncertain future because of medical conditions, financial situations, family disruption, church blowing apart. We have one master, his burden is easy. What we're pulling is we're pulling the Great Commission behind us. We're pulling the purpose that Jesus has given us. You wanna be his disciple? then live like Jesus lived. Be like him. Take his yoke upon your neck and learn what it means to work in tandem with others to accomplish his purposes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that all of us would find ourselves to be faithful, available, and teachable. My Lord, we want to learn From you. We want to learn through those whom you've placed around us who are more mature in Christ than we are. We desire to be discipled. We don't want it to stop just with simply conversion. And Father, we want to get to the point where we may disciple others. May this church be strong and healthy. May we be disciplers. May we be those who are pulling the burden that your Son Jesus Christ carried himself that we imitate by reaching those who are lost in this community and by encouraging those, Father, who need that encouragement in this church. Help us to walk together. In Jesus' name, amen.